Well, just last night, it being Christmas Eve, uh, Julie, Jacob, and I were at the house opening presents uh, because we're going to be traveling later today, and so we were opening gifts, and you know, it was very calm, and it was very orderly. And so I was trying to, I was trying to remember what opening presents was like at Christmas when I was a kid. I was talking with Brian this morning, and he watched his great-grandchildren open presents last night, and it was just mayhem, and that's what I remember. That's what I remember as a kid. There were six of us kids in the house, so mom, dad, six kids. I was the youngest, uh, so I was, I was always behind the learning curve, uh, and it was chaos. Uh, it was, you were just kind of allowed to rip open presents and, you know, and look at everything the way that you wanted to, and, and obviously I was very, very selfish and uh, only cared about what was given to me uh, while I have all these brothers and sisters in the room. But over time, I became a little more interested, just a little, in uh, what was going on around me and what other people were reserving for Christmas. And uh, oh, oh, I forgot, I gave them a present. I wanted to watch them open that one uh, to see what uh, their reaction is to the present that I gave them. You know, it turns out that Christmas is about other people too. Now, now in my life, uh, a large part of Christmas goes to finding gifts that make other people happy. And uh, that's certainly not a bad thing. Uh, we all have our Christmas traditions. Uh, some people are, experience a lot of anxiety about what they, what they buy other people. That doesn't happen to me, but I know it happens to many. And, uh, and we're still learning, aren't we, that it's, it's better to give than to receive. The Bible tells us. It's true. I believe it's true. It's better to give than receive. We convince ourselves of the truths of Scripture. We're still learning today as each December rolls by that Christmas is not about us. When John writes, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten sons that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, we do not say, oh, look at my salvation. No, we say, oh, look at the God who saves. It's God who gave so that we would not perish but have everlasting life. In John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, 22 to 36, we learn from John the Baptist that Jesus is God's greatest gift to us because he's the one who completes our joy. And we learn from the Apostle John, who's our author, that Jesus is God's greatest gift to us, who brings an avalanche of other attending gifts with him. Love, salvation, and the Holy Spirit. So we're skipping over the first half of John chapter 3. You noticed this morning, uh, Eric Gann will preach that message to us next Sunday on New Year's Day. This morning I'll be preaching from John chapter 3 verses 22 to 36. And I'd like to read that for us if you'd read along with me. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing near Aon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, 
but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands up and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Well, after the events surrounding the Passover in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples leave the city and they spend some time in the countryside, not far from where John the Baptist is still preaching a message of repentance. He's still telling people that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and and baptizing those who believe, baptizing those who repent. Now, baptism here is a rite of purification, which kind of makes sense, being washed in water, cleansing, purification, And John has been preaching. I mean, he's been saying to people, do you want to be cleansed from your sins? That's the message of repentance. Do you want to be made pure before God? Then repent of your sins and turn to God, and he will purify your hearts. Renew your commitment to pursue righteousness, the righteousness of God, by being baptized and being washed clean in the water. That's John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry. And verse 22 now seems to indicate that Jesus was also baptizing people, but there's, but there's a clarification if we were to skip down to chapter 4, verse 2. If we were to sneak just into the next chapter, we would see that Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. And they were also baptizing as a symbol of purification. Now the Apostle John, our author, is emphasizing the issue of purification with the interaction between John the Baptist's disciples and a Jew. They've come together to have a, a little theological uh, talk, argument, if you will, over purification and how it takes place. John the Apostle, our author, is emphasizing the issue of purification with this interaction. And the issue is that the Jew is following the purification rules from the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. But the disciples are following and called to follow repentance as a means to purification that if you would repent of your sins and turn to the righteousness of God, that you would be purified by grace under a new covenant that Jesus has brought. That is what Jesus revealed in his first sign. Remember, transforming water into wine at at the wedding in Cana, rendering the six stone jars of water for ceremonial washing obsolete. Now that he has come and brought the blessing and the bounty of God in himself, represented by the new and better wine. And there's no, there's no tension between John the Baptist and Jesus. There's no competition between John the Baptist and Jesus. John is clear that he baptizes with water, but that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
God revealed this truth to John when he baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. That they may have been that day may have been the most encouraging day in John's ministry. I can imagine that being the case. When Jesus comes, the one he's been proclaiming is finally identified to him by God, and he's told that he's the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. You see, John has been preaching a message of repentance for purification. That's what he's been preaching, waiting all of that time to point to Jesus Christ, who is the purifier, the one who makes non-pure things pure. We cannot purify ourselves. No matter how hard we try, no matter how many times we get baptized in water, we cannot render our sinful selves pure. Purity is a precious thing. Moral purity is a precious thing. Being pure and holy before God is a glorious thing. But it is a thing that we cannot do. All glory goes to the one who is able and willing to purify us of our sin. And Jesus is that purifier. And John, John the Baptist, is his witness. A few of John's remaining disciples come to John. I think they're a little dejected. I think they're a little down. Maybe even a little bitter. Because more and more people are going to Jesus to be baptized by his disciples than are coming to John. And here's an amazing thing about John the Baptist. People are still hearing about John. They're still coming to John to be baptized by him. And he keeps calling them to repentance and baptizing them and then telling them to go to Jesus. He tells them, behold, Jesus, the Son of God, whose sandal I'm not fit to untie. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Follow him. But these disciples of John's, faithful to John, their teacher, they're disappointed in that. They're disappointed in that. So John tells them a well-known truth. In verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it comes from heaven. It's a broad biblical truth that John is applying to just one thing. He's narrowed it down to one thing, his ministry. I've been given one thing from above, and it is this ministry. John's been given one ministry from God in heaven, and it's a privilege to have this ministry, and it is to witness to Christ, to tell others about Christ. And so he reminds his disciples, you've heard me say, you can bear witness to me. You've heard me say a hundred times, I'm not the Christ. You've heard my mission statement a thousand times. I came first, but he is greater. I am the forerunner. I'm the herald of the king who is coming. And then John uses a wedding analogy. Maybe you'll understand it this way. You see, Jesus is like a bridegroom. And all of these people coming to him are like his bride. And you know that he's the bridegroom because he's the one that has the bride. And John says, I'm the bridegroom's friend. We would say best man. He's the bridegroom's best man. I'm not in competition with Jesus. I'm here to see him get his bride. I want to see everything, including the ministry I've built up, push everything to Jesus so that he has his bride. That's what John's saying. And so John says, 
Here's his commitment to that. Here's what's true about that. John's greatest joy is to fulfill his mission, to send everyone he meets to become a disciple of Jesus, for them to repent and to be purified by Christ. Remember, John himself needs to be purified by Christ. All the time he's been telling others, there's someone coming. There's a Savior coming. There's an anointed one coming. You know in the back of his mind, he has to know. And he's for me too. Don't you know that John is also waiting to meet the Christ? For himself, this is, a, this is a great Christmas gift to John. To be the friend of Jesus, who is the friend of sinners. And he, we could say professionally and personally rejoices. We could say it that way. To hear Jesus' voice. Why? Because Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. And as such, Jesus gives perfect voice to the perfect Word of God. Could there be a better, sweeter, truer voice to listen to? John doesn't think so. Now everyone will hear the voice John wants them to hear. Not John's voice. Turn, turn down the volume on John's voice. John's joy is complete for everyone to hear the voice of Jesus turned up to full volume. John rejoices to see Jesus ascending and him descending. But that will not be without its difficulties. He must increase but I must decrease. We often say that same thing to ourselves, but I doubt we fully mean it. We usually mean, I know I need to think less of myself and more of Jesus. I know that in my, in my heart and in my attitudes, I need to think more of Jesus and less of myself, and that's right. But we never really expect to experience temporal decrease, like, like real-world living decrease as the result of that inward spiritual good, do we? But that's exactly what decrease brought to John the Baptist. John's decreasing brought real, practical, everyday loss. Real loss, real loneliness, real pain and persecution real decrease without doing anything wrong and as a result of doing everything right John will lose friends and followers he'll lose favor and prominence he'll lose respect and attention his preaching opportunities will dry up and his ministry will rapidly shrink to almost nothing and you can imagine everybody's response to that I mean he was a big deal. They were pouring out of Jerusalem to go see this man in the wilderness and hear his message and be baptized by him. And now you can hear their responses. Hey, didn't you used to be John the Baptist? Are you not God's prophet anymore? What a has-been. What are you doing these days besides just wandering around? 
dressed in animal skins. You see, as his circumstances change, John will remain steadfast. Remember he said his joy is complete? As his circumstances change, his real-world circumstances will really change. But John will remain steadfast. He will stand for God's truth and grow unpopular in his calling people to repentance. He will publicly be accused, or he will publicly accuse Herod, King Herod of adultery. He will take a vocal stand on the Bible's teaching on marriage and divorce, sex and adultery. He will be faithful to point to Jesus and stand on the truth of God's word. He'll go on doing that. And as a result, he will be persecuted, jailed, and as you know, beheaded. Not because he failed in ministry, but because he was uncompromisingly successful in decreasing so that Jesus would increase. We're not as keen to see Jesus increase when the result is a real decrease in our lives, not one like that. Maybe even in some subtle ways in which Jesus would have have us to witness to him. We just don't like decrease. For example, maybe being kind and gentle and loving in your relationships with one another. What if it generates real decrease? A noticeable kind of decrease. Maybe you're a husband who, to witness to Christ, needs to decrease in doing what you want in order to serve your wife so that she will flourish in God's role for her. Maybe you're a wife, to witness to Christ, needs to decrease in self-absorption to better respect her husband so that he will flourish in the role that God has given him. Moms and dads. Maybe you are a parent who, while maintaining discipline in the home, in order to witness to Christ, needs to stop discouraging your children at every turn. All of these God-given roles require you to decrease in some way in order for Jesus to increase. But you won't like how it feels a lot of the time. Maybe you're an employee who, to witness to Christ, needs to be more humble in the workplace and less bragging, even though real promotions may pass you by. Maybe maintaining your witness to Christ in public will, will bring persecution and loss and suffering in various ways, in various degrees. And John the Baptist would remind us of our God-given ministry to witness to Christ and to do so with joy. Even when Jesus' increase brings real, not just theoretical, but real decrease. When it's more than a humbling of attitude, but a real world humbling that everyone can see and judge you by. You see, I think John is teaching us two equal and opposing lessons in this passage. And the first is that Christmas is not about you. John's joy is complete because it was never about John. It was about John. He would just be as, as joyful as he was with no completion. It was always about Jesus. We could say that John's Christmas joy is complete 
to hear God's word in God's own voice. John's Christmas joy is complete because Jesus, the purifier, has come for him. And John's Christmas joy is complete because the Christmas he's been looking for has finally arrived. Because Christmas was never about John. See, we're trained, we're trained from birth to believe that Christmas is about us, aren't we? What do you want for Christmas? Make a list of the things you want, and we will make you happy. Oh, the pressure we put on ourselves to make other people's happy, especially at Christmas. If you believe that Christmas is about you, you will never really be happy at Christmas beyond a new sweater or a favorite cookie. Because you will always, or you will have, driven a wedge between you and the true gift of Christmas. John the Baptist will suffer injustice, prejudice, slander, and indignity and say, I'm content with my role to witness to Jesus. John will not have driven a wedge between him and Jesus. He won't allow that to happen. Nor will he allow a wedge to be driven between his disciples and Jesus. John will decrease. And with all his heart, John will have Jesus increase. If John were to send you a Christmas card, John's Christmas card uh, would say to you on the front, Christmas is not about you. And if you are not too offended to open it up, it would say on the inside, Christmas is about Jesus. You see, that's the second equal and opposing lesson in this passage. John's gift at Jesus is the one that comes from above. Let me read again, beginning in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now you may have noticed as we're reading that the quotation marks for John the Baptist ended in verse 30. So in verse 31, this is our author, the Apostle John, again, identifying to us who Jesus is. That's why John's writing, this is who Jesus is so that you will believe in him. And he begins by telling us that Jesus is from above. And because Jesus is from above, Jesus is above all. And he says it twice so that we can't possibly miss it. He who comes from above is above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. He's telling us, again, that Jesus has come from his Father. And just as the Father is over us, so too Jesus is over us. We are of the earth, you and me. We speak in earthly ways, ways that need to be purified because we're, we're from below. Jesus is from God. He's from God above, and he gives witness to the things of God above. Almost everyone, John says, who has heard Jesus' testimony of the things of God did not receive Jesus' testimony. They, they preferred earthly witness to the heavenly witness. Today, most of the people around us who reject Scripture choose to not receive Jesus' own testimony. 
But for those who do, they receive this, that God is true. And John goes on to say three things from Jesus' testimony that I want us to see this Christmas morning are true. In the first part of verse 35, John tells us that the Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was before John, and now Jesus has been born into this world from above. Jesus' human nature has a beginning at Christmas, but His divine nature has no beginning. They have always been father and son, and they have always loved one another with the perfect love of God, which goes beyond our understanding, but not beyond our experience if we would receive Jesus' testimony. In the second part of verse 35, John tells us that he has given all things into his hands. He has given all things into his hands. Everything is from Jesus and to Jesus and for Jesus. The Father has placed the entire plan of redemption in Jesus' hands. And Jesus fulfills the covenant of grace, the plan of redemption. Jesus is the one and only one who can save you from your sins and deliver you into the arms of your heavenly Father. All who receive Jesus' gospel testimony become one with the Father and the Son and are loved by the Father and the Son with the same love with which the Father and the Son loved one another in eternity. You might think me trite if I were to call that Christmas love. But it certainly is. And you can have the love of God this very Christmas. Now, you good Trinitarians are thinking, well, what about the Spirit? You've got the Father and the Son. Scott, don't forget the Spirit, never. In verse 34, John tells us, He gives the Spirit without measure. He gives the Spirit without measure. Remember, John the the Baptist baptizes with water, symbolizing our intent to pursue purity. But Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Who will purify us? Who will make us clean? It's a forward look to Pentecost. When Jesus, having ascended to heaven, pours out the Spirit of God, who will apply the salvation that Jesus has accomplished at his death, burial, and resurrection. His sin-atoning death on the cross and his life-giving resurrection from the dead on those who receive his gospel testimony, who believe. And Jesus brings an avalanche of gifts with him. The indwelling Spirit causes us to focus on Jesus. He causes us to become like Jesus, to receive an avalanche of gifts from God that are listed in this passage for us if we would see them. The gift of purity and the purifier for us to witness to. The gift of truth and a gospel word to give our voices to. Love with which to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love with which to love one another even as Christ has loved us. 
all this avalanche of gifts to us in Christ, who is the perfect gift. Christmas is about Jesus. Christmas and everything in it is about Jesus. It's not about me. It's about the God-man who came to save us from our sins. And he requires a response. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You must receive him by faith completely, or you will reject him. To simply ignore him is also to reject him. That would be like looking at a Christmas package and leaving it unopened and walking away. That's rejection. And there are real consequences to your response. If you believe in him, you will have eternal life and a host of glorious gifts that attend him. If you remain indifferent to him, the wrath of God will remain upon you. Now here you are and you have made the effort to come to church on Christmas morning. And no one wants to hear about a wrathful God on Christmas morning. They say, tell me how God, tell me how God looks more like Santa Claus than a wrathful God on Christmas Day, please. But the problem is not with God's wrath. The problem is with your sin. The problem is with your sin against Him. He is the one who has sent a Savior to you. Fear not, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who's Christ the Lord. Don't lodge a complaint against the wrathful God whom you have sinned against, whom has sent you a Savior, that you might escape His wrath and instead be loved and find yourself pure and holy and gathered together with the saints in heaven. You see, sin is about you. Christmas is about Jesus. John's Christmas message is that a wrathful God can forgive your sin in Jesus Christ. You are the needy one. He is the giving one. Choose to receive the gift of Jesus. No longer fear the wrath of God. Walk in His gifts of purity, generosity, purpose, love. And have your joy made complete in Jesus. Heavenly Father, we, we are blessed this Christmas morning to know that You are the giver of Christ who purifies sinners, who would just repent and turn to you and receive him. That you give the gift of love. Father, the gift of, the gift of purity. The gift of fellowship with God. And so, Father, we praise you and we thank you and we worship you in Christ this morning and in his name. Amen. Amen.